Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, what, a, what a blessing and an honor it is to just, first of all, what an honor it is just to be able to stand up and talk about Jesus anywhere. It is such a mercy in my life, and please don't think that I take it for granted whatsoever. I'm so honored to be standing in front of you today to, to get a chance to just present Christ to you, right? I mean, because he is absolutely everything. Um, Brother Paul wanted me to share my testimony today. I'm not going to bore you with all of it. But he did want me, there's a specific thing that he remembered that I practically forgot. And he wanted me to tell you about the first time I heard the gospel and how the man came in to preach it. Um, real quick, just as an overview, as you can, most of you can look at me and tell I haven't always been saved. God knows I wish I was, but... That's how it works out sometimes, right? Um, no one in my family is saved. I, you know, I say that, but then I have this great-grandmother who I do remember now as a little boy. And she prayed. Look, and I'm talking about when we all would come together once a year for her birthday. It was October 25th. Never forget. We would all meet at this little restaurant called Cat uh, Catalina's. It was a seafood restaurant. And the table, they would put like four tables together because everyone loved this woman. Now, we didn't have anything to do with one another except for this one time a year. I didn't see these other people. I would have to ask who these people were when I was a little kid. But she had a relationship with Jesus, okay? When she started praying, the food was cold when she got done. And she did not leave out one single person. And I remember now, over the years, hearing my name. She's the only one. There was no one else praying for me. No one on this planet. And it was absolutely amazing. So when I say no one, I don't mean no one. I mean only her. <laughs> and so I grew up. I actually grew up in uh, the projects that down in um, Moe, Alabama. I was, it was a cross between um, Birdville. That's what they called the projects. It was Birdville. Every single street named after a bird. It's, it's absolutely, it's, if any of you like birds, you will love riding through here. <laughs> except for the fact that it's a project. So you're going to be a little scared, okay? I don't take my kids or my family down there. It's gotten really, really bad. It looks like scorched earth. It looks like the rapture's already happened. And they took who, they, who, who he wanted to take and left. Who, that's what it looks like. It's scary. So I, I can't believe that we were down there. And there's this other part of town that, that I also claim. It's not too far from there. I would always say, hey, I'm from Birdville, and I'm also from down the bay. And, and all it is is Broad Street runs parallel with Mobile Bay. We, we lived on the other side of Broad Street, was, which was also very, very rough. And the reason why I lived in both places is because my mom was uh, 15 when she had me. So thank God I had two grandparents. And I was obviously troubled back and forth between both grandparents. I'd do six months over here, six months over here till they couldn't stand me anymore. Wild, feral, I mean, godless, heathen, um, you know, just like everybody else. Just like the rest of my family and my neighborhood. And um, I was born a sinner, obviously, born depraved, but absolutely sharpened in that depravity by my surroundings. 
And um, um, dad, my dad, you know, there's no other way to say it. He, he's, he's, he's half Hispanic. Um, he loves cocaine and alcohol and has his whole life. And uh, even though he lives in the same city, there were sometimes we went years without seeing each other. Um, and when I did see him, he was all, the only times I really did see him is when he was coming down off cocaine. I don't know if anybody has ever seen someone come down on cocaine. They hate themselves and they absolutely hate the face of children. They don't want to see anything innocent. They don't want to see anything like that. So I always thought my dad hated me, but it wasn't that he hated me, he hated himself. Uh, my mother, also intravenous user for many, many years. My stepfather helped, you know, take her down that path. Absolutely. So it just was, you know, the, some of the worst stories you hear, that's pretty much where I was headed with that. But then when I was 11, 12 years old, my sin, my sin was really waiting on me. And then uh, I, I loved it, of course. And then I took what I knew, and I, just like all kids do, all kids are going to take what you know and and take it to the next level. And I took everything I knew to the next level. See, my, most of my family were functioning addicts. I couldn't do that. I can't function. I, was, uh, I ended up in jail 20 times. Um, I ended up in prison twice. But I ended up in prison on the same charge, basically. I just couldn't do the probation that they put me on. I ended up catching my own robbery charge. By the way, let me back up real quick. I was raised by the, these grandparents. They had a few children, which would be my uncles and my aunts. One of my uncles ended up dying in Holman Prison. That's level five. That's the maximum security prison in Alabama. It's the worst of the worst. It's where they put you away, never to be heard of again. And he had two first-degree armed robberies. He had one first-degree RAPE. I don't want to just scare the kids in here. He died in Holman Prison right around the time that I was going back for the second time. Now I went for the first time. They gave me they gave me a 10 split. I didn't have any I didn't have any prior felonies. I was a misdemeanor king. So I was working my way. You know, you got to not up down. You're working way down, you know. Misdemeanors and then felonies come. But I had 20 misdemeanors. I finally caught my uh, my felony. It was it was violent. It was second degree at first. I went to I took it to trial. Got it dropped to a third. I ended up going to prison. They gave me a 10 split 18 months. I went and did the 18 months. It was over real fast. I didn't learn anything. Got out. I did two years of probation. This is all in my early 20s and then mid 20s. And then I went back for the second time. And when I went back for the second time, the split was pulled. I had eight and a half years of backup. So I go in. And I don't, for a long time, I never received any kind of... Uh, parole papers or anything. So I thought, in my mind, I'm doing eight and a half years. It was just this, I just, I just remember thinking that this is still unsafe, unregenerated mind, but I remember thinking, how could you do this to yourself again? Like you made all these promises that you were never going back and you this and that, but I didn't know what else to do. I had, there was nowhere else that I was headed back. I thank God for every single moment that I spent in that penitentiary and I would not change one moment of it because on the second trip I got to hear the gospel and I got to hear the gospel presented in a way that no one's preaching out here you ain't gonna preach this way on Sunday morning you're not you're gonna run the congregation out this man came in and I, and I remember the only reason I was inside of the uh, chapel that morning and by the way you have the freedom of religion 
inside of prison. I don't understand this. You have no other freedoms. You are a number. You, you, your name's been taken away from you. You're a number, but you have the freedom not to go to chapel. And you have the freedom to go to any Islam chapel. They, the Islam comes in there. The Buddhist chapels, they all come in there. But you don't have to go. And I remember someone died inside this penitentiary. And I remember right before, right before I went, see, I said my Uncle Nooney, he had just died. And I had one Aunt Priscilla who, who was like the rose that grew from the concrete. She made it out of the projects. She got married. She'd done very well for herself. She, I remember just kind of idolizing her as I was growing up. And I remember every now and then, every now and then going, trying to get advice from her. She didn't have a whole lot of advice because she didn't have Christ yet. Now, she's saved now, but at the time, she's, everybody's telling me, well, don't do this and don't do that. How well does that work out for your kids? Parents? Yeah. Right? You got to say, don't do this. Do this. Do this. This is the way you go. So I remember specifically calling her on the phone, and she said this. I never, these words ring out to my head every time I get close to even telling this te uh, testimony. She knew it was me. I didn't already made all the promises that I wasn't going back. Her brother had just died at home in prison. So, and she loved me. She picks the phone up. She already knows it's me because that's what the phone says. The phone says, you have a collect call from Victor Herman, Victor Joshua Herman. She answered the phone. She said, you're back in there? I said, yeah, you know. She said, you're going to die in there like your Uncle Nooney. Click. Wow. That was the most truth anybody ever told me in my whole life. At the time, I'm still a person of comparison, so I'm looking at him and his charges, and I said, I ain't no. Done it all, but I haven't done that. So in my mind, I, she compared me to him. I wasn't seeing the truth in what she was saying. I get to, I find, I, by the second time I went, they took, me, they took me right on in. I mean, I'd already been processed from the first time, so they just, I went to my, and I went to a very, very, very hard penitentiary. It was a lot worse than that first one I went to. And um, there were a lot of things going on there that I would never, ever, ever, ever mention to anyone. And a few months into it, guess what? Someone got stabbed to death with a piece of metal that they found somewhere on the property and they sharpened on concrete. This man died over some drugs that you pay about $20 for in the streets. And so they locked the entire camp down, and I'm up on the rack. I'm up on the rack. You know, they, they had us all face down like this for a week. And looking back now, I understand why they did that. Because when animals smell blood, it excites them. And, and it had the whole camp in an uproar. There were six dorms. There were 200 men per dorm, 1,200 men on site behind the fence. And they had to... Keep it all down because one thing could spark over here and then all of a sudden all the heathens rise up and start doing all their wickedness. But during that time, I had never sat still that long in my whole life. During that week, I was sitting in the rack thinking about this man and then I was thinking about what my Aunt Priscilla said and it connected. And I said, I could die in here like Noonie. I could die in here like Noonie. And the word of God says, the wise man thinks much of death while the fool thinks of only having a good time now. 
well, that was my principles in life. We're going to have a good time. We're all going to all be drinking. Sure, the house burnt down, but man, it was awesome. What a great time we had. That was how I lived my life because that's how my daddy and all of them, everyone, it was all about having a good time. It was all about laughing. Anyway, so I finally, I, that connected, and as soon as I come off my um, bunk and, and everything calmed down, I said, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I know that if I make it out of here, I have got to be changed because looking backwards, I'm getting progressively worse and worse and worse, dumber and dumber and dumber. And I had one grandmother. I had another grandmother who blasphemed every day of her life all day long. And, right, and then for everything, though, she would she'd be trying to change the remote control and it'd be OG and JC and all that. And one day, about 17 years old, she had said his name like three times. Me not knowing anything about God. Nothing. I looked at her and I said, why do you say his name all the time? And it was like I had hit her in the face with a brick. She didn't know. She didn't know. Now, later on, I find out that, you know, the, the Bible says that uh, the carnal-minded man is at enmity yeah. in a constant state of hostility towards God. They don't know why they blaspheme. They don't even understand their heart is burning with hatred towards him. Matter of fact, when she passed away, she told me, and I, I, I was just now surrendering my life to the Lord. You know what she told me? I don't want no preacher in here. She said, if you want to, you could say a little prayer or something like that, but don't. And I, I just remember thinking, be me. Please. Please. So I'm sitting inside this chapel because even though my grandmother was blaspheming his name, I realized that that name had power over her. This is me. This is the, the Holy Spirit giving this to me, working in, and God using everything for his glory. Everything for, to, for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose, right? I thought of that. I ended up inside this um, chapel. I went a couple times. There were some odd, strange people that came through there. They let a lot of people come through there. One time there was these dancers. I'll never forget that with the, with the baton. And there's nothing wrong with dancers with the baton thing. If anybody does that in here, please don't get offended. But I'm saying, for the setting, we're inside a penitentiary. You just sit a bunch of ladies in here with the baton twirling. I'm sitting in that thing laughing. My brain's out. About the third time, about the third person that came in. I'm about to give up, actually. I'm about to stop going. Third time, man came in. Uh, Button-down Oxford, solid white shirt. $10 khakis from... You know, Kmart, little flip phone on the side, nothing special, nothing fantastic about this man. He comes in, wood, a wood pool pit, a lot like this, a little bit smaller setting. He comes in and he starts telling his testimony. He said, uh, he said, I was 17 years old, no priors or anything. He said he was in a bar at 17. They were all drinking. He gets into a fight. He stabs a man. He kills him. The man dies from like one or two punctures. The man was beating him, though. So it, was, it wasn't premeditated. So what he got was a manslaughter charge. He got a first-degree manslaughter, not a murder or anything, because the man was beating on him. They gave him 20 years. And he had to do day for day. So from 17 to about how old I am now, and somewhere in that, he got radically saved and changed by the Lord Jesus Christ in prison. 
He's been out for 10 years and he's pastoring a church. And the first thing my silly little mind thinks is, man, they let murderers pastor churches? I have no idea about the power of the gospel. I have no idea about God's grace and mercy and what it does to a man. I had no idea. But as the end is rolling up, he's rolling up his sleeves. He, I don't know what he's fixing to do. I don't understand why he's doing that. But he does all that. He's got all these prison tattoos because I don't think he was saved the first 10 years he was in there. But he's rolling his sleeves up as he gets to the end of his thing. And out of nowhere, he just, just comes down and wow. And I thought for sure that this pulpit was going to explode into the thing. And when he hits it, he says, don't you know that God is angry with the wicked every single day? Don't you understand that the wicked shall not stand in judgment? Don't you know that the wicked is like chaff that the wind blows away? Literally like pieces of trash that just gets tossed to and fro by the wind. And he must have, he must have hammered on, he, all he ever, he talked for another 15 minutes and all, all of 13 minutes of it was on how much God hates sin and the sinner. And about those last three minutes, he said, but there's a way of escape. God has made a way of escape. And then he tells, and he shares the gospel, how God's son came into this world to live perfectly, thought, word, and deed, and then to go to the cross to suffer the punishment that you and I deserve. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in him and repents from their sin will be saved. And, and, and he goes on, he talks a little bit about resurrection. And here I am, hard-headed, hard, I'm super hard-headed. I'm in pews. And I just remember slumping down every time he, every time he, I said, ooh, ooh. And I, I never heard anything like that before in my life. And I wish I could say that I just, that I instantly got up and come down to the altar. It wasn't like that. I left out, and I was extremely curious. I knew for sure that that man believed what he was saying, 100%. I needed confirmation. I go straight to a man that I had seen in there, and he's in my dorm, and I walk up to him. He's an older gentleman. I said, hey, brother, um, is what that guy said true? <laughs> and this man puts his hand on my shoulder, okay, looks at me intent. I mean, like, pierces through my brain. It's, it, from what I remember, and he said, every single word of it. And I just remember, like, man, that's heavy. Went to my rack a couple of weeks later. It's working on me. It's working on me. The, the Spirit of God, the message is working on me. I, it's rattling around in there. It's making a little bit more sense with each day passing. Because I understand the state that I'm in. Depravity, look, no one had to convince me of depravity. Do you understand? I think with me having that, that grounds and that basis, everything, all the theology makes perfect sense if you have that basis, that we're all born depraved. And it just gets worse from there. Now, I go to him after a couple of weeks. I say, what do I do? <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> He said, you know, he said, let's just start reading. I said, I've never read my Bible before. I've never read a Bible before in my life. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll work with you a little bit. And he said, go and memorize uh, Psalm 1. I said, what do you mean memorize? He said, memorize it. Come quote it to me. I said, okay. A couple weeks went by. I'm writing it. I'm reading it a couple lines at a time. I'm memorizing it. Finally, I closed the book up. I quoted it. I went to him. I quoted it. I realized through that. 
Blesses the man that walketh not to the uh, blesses the man that walketh not to the what the counsel of the ungodly, or standeth in the way of the sinner, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. I realize I am the counsel of the ungodly because I've been preaching my whole life. I've been spewing out my folly and getting people to come with me my whole life, way before I was ever preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. All human beings are. You're all telling someone something. And I realized I was that person. And I realized the wicked will not stand in judgment. I said, I'm going to be falling in judgment. If, if you're not standing, you're falling. I'm not going to make it. So Psalm 1 had me realize my full state, my relationship with God at the time. Then I go back to him. He says, I said, I'm checking the box off. What now? What now? What do I do now? He said, well, go memorize uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray, Seek my face, turn from their wicked way, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. And after I memorized that, it was about a few days later after that, one little line. We think, see, we think it takes the, all, the, all, we think I got, I got to explain from Genesis, right, to Revelation. God says all I need is a little bit, a little bit of faith. One line hit me and it cracked my heart wide open. And all it was was, I'll hear from heaven. I'll hear you. I'll hear you. Man, one night inside my bunk, you know, everybody doesn't have to have some crazy experience. I had to have one, okay? Paul had to be blinded and knocked off the horse and uh, terrifying experience. I was up in my rack, and what happened was the Holy Spirit of God come upon me one night, and the Holy Spirit done what the Holy Spirit's job is, convict me of not just one or two sins, but my entire state. Right. I was up in that rack. Thank God I had a top rack, because I'm still in prison, right? You know, nobody needs to see me crying. I looked up at that. I looked up at the ceiling for four hours, and I was, you're talking, you want to talk about doing everything you can do, not to boohoo, but still... The aqueducts on my eyelids just opened up, and supernaturally, I cried for four hours. I was dehydrated the next day. Look, and it was like a, it was like a reel had popped up. My memories, you know, Romans 1 says that the conscience either accuses or excuses, but it also says that it's also writing a record. Yeah. My conscience opened up and showed me the, the ledger my whole life for four hours. It wasn't my whole life because I couldn't take anymore after four hours. After four hours, gently, gently, I'll never forget, I said, I'm looking, I'm remembering, I'm going, that's enough. <laughs> I can't take no more. The next day, I walked around like a ghost. It wasn't long after that. I just put all my faith and trust in Jesus. I had a moment, you know, had a moment, and it was great, and I was phenomenal. Let's just fast forward through all that, though. Let's say um, a couple of years ago, uh-oh, here we go. I, bet I need to find my notes, trust me. You don't want me up here with no notes. <laughs> Ask the guys from Friday night. I think Jonathan said, that's the longest I ever heard you preach, about an hour and 20 minutes. Let's fast forward 10, at least, at least 10 years. I don't know what the time, it's been a long time. A little, over, a little over two years ago, a little over two years ago, the Lord called me and my wife to First Baptist Chickasaw. I know that's a whole leap, but my, my testimony is all over the place. If you want, you can go to um, 
Uh, First Baptist Chickasaw on Facebook. There's some there, uh, a lot of it there, actually. There's a couple little things uh, up at the top you guys can check out. A little over two years ago, the Lord called me and my wife, Jacqueline, to FBC. By the way, my wife, she's been to federal prison. So I always like to say, oh, you think you're better than me, huh? I went to state prison. You was in the feds? Mm. Anyways, this is a silly joke. I really thought after I really thought us going over to First Baptist, getting called over there. Uh, there's so many supernatural things, by the way, that got us there. I just there's not enough time. I really thought that out of the sheer excitement, though, that there would be people rushing over to help us. We have got a lot of friends, and they're spread out over denominations. We 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 cross over denominations. I mean, we really do. If if as long as we stick close to salvation. And what sin is, me and you can fellowship mostly, most of the time. I'm not going to say every time, but we had a lot of friends and nobody came. And I think, I think they all thought it was too much or too much work. And they were right. It looked like an impossible task. The church had had a couple bad splits and it looked like it had eaten itself from the inside out. There was, there was only about 12 or 15 people when I got there. I got voted in. They all voted unanimously, yes, and then half of them left. So here I am with six people. And this monstrosity of a building. Okay, it's intimidating. I got six people, and I hadn't even seen the inside of the sanctuary because there was damage in there. I just We were meeting in a side building for months. I, I hadn't even seen this thing. Thank God I hadn't seen it because if I would have seen it, Nope. Nope, too much. So, we dug in. I knew that for sure, if anything was going to happen, it was going to be miracles. We needed big, big miracles, right? We dug in. I did the only thing that I know how to do. I kept presenting Jesus. I kept presenting the gospel. We love people. We engage people. In their lives, the building was falling in on itself, and out of nowhere, the funds showed up to make all the improvements, most of the improvements, 70% of the improvements. And we're talking about a lot of funds, but I'm talking about a million dollars showed up in the bank account. Someone, this is a 100-year-old church, by the way. Someone left a legacy gift. Someone done really well for themselves. And sometime in the last 40 years, they went and wrote a will out. And they said, my church needs this money. And their kids got their inheritance. And their kids could have said anything. They could have held it up in probate for years and said, nope, mama's crazy. Right? I'm sure lots of kids today would. No way don't give that, that much money to the church. But they pushed it through. I never seen anything happen that fast in probate. Matter of fact, in Mobile, Alabama, probate is backed up right now. I know that because the house I just bought was in probate for two and a half years. Held up on all kinds of silly stuff. This lasted six months and the million dollars hit. I didn't even know. First of all, I didn't know it was on the way. I'd already got voted in. Three months had passed. They, they called me up to the office. I thought I was getting fired. And I was happy. I said... At least I don't have to quit. This is hard. Then an even bigger miracle happened. Six people left, six people stayed. But in those three months' time, in those three months, 
20 lost people showed up. And then, bigger miracle than, million than a million dollars and all of that, those lost people periodically started getting saved. And I got a chance to be a part of that and to baptize them in this big old giant baptistry. I mean, you know how Baptists are when they got money. They've got to go all out. The baptistry is up here with a with a 25-foot cross, okay? It's a bit much. It's not what I would have started with. Much rather had a shack and then kind of grow out of the shack, but whatever. God, you doing it. These people started getting saved. I got one gentleman in here with me. I just love to tell this story. He's, he's in his late 20s or, or about to be 30. He came in under, six, under them six months. He came in one night at the service, uh, one night at a, at, a, at a midweek service, he stood up. He said, I've been playing around, going to church to church. He said, I'm surrendering my life to the Lord Jesus tonight. Oh, man. And then after that, guess what? His stepdad came in. And his stepdad had stage four cancer. He comes in, and in mid-service, he just starts screaming out, I believe, I believe, I believe. And I knew he was coming in. I knew he was dying. We all just stopped the service and we went over there and all put hands on him and loved him and prayed for him. I, I, I shared the gospel with him four times to make sure he knew exactly what he believed. And we prayed for him. And I'm, 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 I believe wholeheartedly that man, I'll see him in heaven. He died just a couple weeks later. Then his mama came in. She hasn't left. Then... Uh, a, a, an, an ex-stepdaughter came in, 16 years old, gave her life to the Lord. Even when the little boy that she, that she brought in didn't want to, she said, no, I still want to. I baptized her this past year. Then, then we met some homeless couples. We started picking them up. We started picking them up. Um, they were living in a tent in people's yard in Sarah Land. We started picking them up, bringing them to church every week. They got saved. I baptized both of them. They're finally... See, because I'm telling you, I knew, I, I'm not, when I sit here and say saved, oh, I'm not talking about they made a profession of faith. I'm saying I, they made the profession of faith, I baptized them, and then I started watching for the hunger and the thirst for righteousness. Because only God can do that. I can dunk folks in here all day long. Nobody's going to want to make them want to do right except God. They're on, they're, they're back, they had so much junk going on that they couldn't even get married. They're about to be married now, though. Getting all that together, because every time I see them, we just want to be right with the Lord, Victor. We just want to be right. I said, praise the Lord. Uh, color hair, a color hair girl came in. You know what colors I'm talking about. The colors, that it's like every few couple years, there's a certain color hair. Does anybody pay attention to this? Like for a while, there was this red, this last uh, political thing going on. There was these purplish. Anyways, I pay attention to these things. One came in. She's angry with God. Angry. Got angry with me. But after hearing Jesus presented to her about 10 times, she sat down and gave her life to the Lord. It's one of those days in the, in the thing. And I'm telling you, she's doing great. She's doing great. One day I came to the church, there was a broke down, there was a man broke down in the back waiting on me to give him money. There was like 10 people inside the church. Any of them could have gave him some money. <laughs> Troy, I don't, he, for some reason, the Lord closed his mouth and 
I got there, I was like, okay. So I could tell he was anxious. I could tell he was very needy. I went ahead and gave him the money so he calmed down. And then me and him in that hallway outside, I just started, I gave him the whole thing. Da, da, da. I'm doing that. I sat there and listened to him for five minutes and I said, I've had enough. And I started preaching the gospel right on top of him, just like that. But until he broke the preaching, me and him, he broke, started crying, contrition. I said, brother, come on, let's walk on in here. We walked in there. Just so happens the worship team is in there practicing. Melissa seen it. She just started playing. <laughs> it was a total setup. God set him up. <laughs> the Lord set him up, man. Look, he come down to the altar and he, he cried for so long and I left him alone. I did not touch him, by the way, while he was down there and he had his moment. I sat right there and watched him for 35 minutes. Even I was sitting there going, all right. Anyways, that's just a few. I do want to tell you about this one. Last, it was uh, about two months ago. Two months ago, preaching through Ephesians, I get to the part about, uh, you know, I get to the part about what God says about marriage, fornication, the whole nine yards, because all that's together. God sees all of the same. You know, the only one way, the only way to be man, woman, married, family, everything outside of that is twisted. Sin. I get to the part and I class it all together. All of it. There was this man who they had been coming into our church. Now they were living together. They had a baby together. They're not married, you know. And I've been letting the word of God. We've been loving them right where they're at. Let the word of God do it. And uh, he come up to me. He didn't even let me get off the stage good after that sermon. He comes up. He's a big old burly man. And he says, um. I had to come to church the day you wrote the whole sermon about me. I started laughing a little bit. I said, brother, not just you. There's about three other <laughs> couples in here. I said, but definitely you. I said, God's trying to speak to you. He said, Marsha doesn't know this. I'm, I'm going to marry her tomorrow. I'm going to take her and marry her tomorrow. And when I got the call that they had went and got married the next day, I broke down crying at the power of God and his word. Amen. He heard. He was convicted. He went and took care of it as soon as he could. So anyways, God's moving at FBC. This is my point. I said all this to say this. God's moving at FBC in a big way. There are a lot of people who are believing and repenting right now there. It's like, it was like a church plant. We started with six people. Not really a revitalization, a church plant. A lot of people are believing and repenting, and man, it is ugly. Discipleship's happening. It's hard at times. It's ugly, but it's worth it. It's worth it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And those who can stand, can we please just stand for the reading of God's word today? Verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Pray with me this morning. Dear 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. And God, I thank you so much for these people. I thank you so much for being asked to come up here. God, just to present your word to these people, Lord, what an honor and privilege it is. And God, we just want to lift you up, Lord, and praise you today and do what you told us to do. You said if you be lifted up, that you draw men to yourself, God. And I pray that you're drawing these people to you. God, as always, I'm a worm. I'm tiny. I'm so insignificant. I need help. I have so many weaknesses. And God, I, I really need you to come in here and do what I cannot do for these people. Please open up eyes. Please unstop ears. Please change hearts, Lord. Please encourage, Lord, and set people's path straight, Lord, what they're supposed to be doing. God, and give them the energy, the redemptive energy to do it. God, we ask all these things in your precious, mighty son's name, Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. I have three main points today. Look, I'm not, I, I don't know if you can't tell, I didn't go to college. But I study like a college student, and there's the difference. I devote my life to this word. I have three main points today, so simple, so easy. The first point is, it's hard to love a leper. The second point is, Jesus loves the leper. And the third point is, Jesus expects us to love the leper. Number one, it's, it's hard to love a leper. If you know anything about leprosy, then you know that it's a terrible, awful, awful, awful disease. It, it starts off as a very dry, scaly skin, maybe scab or a bright spot patches on the face, on the hands, on the ears. Turns into pink patches over the eyebrows, the chin, the cheeks, the ear. It's, it's, then it spreads, right? It turns out into a mushy, oozing tumors bulbous tumors all over the face and the body. The disease attacks the nervous system, destroying all the pain receptors in the body. So it doesn't hurt so much. But because the infected person can't feel anything, what ends up happening is they end up rubbing their noses off. They take on a very Michael Jackson look towards the end there. They literally work their fingers to the bone. Because if any man that knows about working with their hands, a lot of times you need gloves, you need protection. A man who cannot feel anything will literally cut and pull back flesh from his fingers. And what they end up having is just bones sticking out from their knuckles. The most ugly, distorted person you could think of. The eyes go blind. It attacks the eyes. The teeth fall out. The hair it falls out. It, then it goes systemic. It attacks the bone marrow. It attacks the blood supply, the liver, and the kidneys. Everything about this leper from the inside out is completely offensive. The way he looks, the way he feels, the way he smells, the disease, the disease even attacks the vocal cords, giving it very smoker, old smoker type raspy to it. They say that if you spend any amount of time with this leper in a room with him, they say that because of the smell, because of all that, that you will develop a film over your tongue. And not only 
Can you see him? Can you hear him? Can you feel him? But if you spend any amount of time with him, you can also taste the leper. Rabbis hated him. Josephus, the historian, wrote this, that lepers were treated like dead men. When they caught the disease, the family would literally throw them a funeral after they were cast out. It was, was it any surprise that God uses leprosy as an illustration for sin? Sin alienates, sin separates, it contaminates, and it's loathsome. It comes from the inside. It defiles the whole body. Sin is ugly. It's offensive. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says that she that lives in wanton pleasure is dead while she lives. Ephesians chapter 2 says that he is dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. That literal, they're actual, literal, spiritual Zombies without Christ. They're just out there bumping into one another, eating each other's hearts out, hurting one another, hurting themselves. They're all walking down the same course, what the Bible says, going down the same road, just like a dead fish floating downstream. Under the control of Satan, children of wrath, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They will lie to you. They will rebel against you. They will hurt you. Isaiah 1.5 says that they are a glutton for punishment because the whole head is sick and the heart is faint. I got a man in this, in this room with me right now who moved across the street from us. And I'm not going to lie. And look, this is, we're I'm coming from a place where I, I wasn't a pastor yet, but I was on it. We were out in the streets. We were evangelizing. I was teaching people how to share the gospel in my, out of my living room. We are on it. We're in it. We're engaged. And I used to pass by this man. He was only two houses. If this is my front door, you walk out one house to the left over there. And I used to pass by him, and I'm telling you, I used to pray to God, please don't let him come out of my house. I ain't kidding you. Shirt off, big old giant peacock tattoo on his chest, and he's out there smoking cigarettes and hollering, hollering, screaming, cussing, and I'm going. And Jacqueline was pregnant with our son, Eli, so I'm kind of in protective mode, I guess, you know, looking at my home. I wasn't seeing things clearly. God straightened me out, though. I'm praying that God not let him come to my house. All the while, my wife is secretly praying that our neighbors be saved in the other room. Her birthday rolls around. It's in December. Don't ask me which day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know what day. Uh, she said, uh, we're, we're, you know, all my friends, pastors, ministers. I met a good friend of mine, Pastor Stan Givens. I met him that night for the first time. Jacqueline actually knew him already, invited him over to the house. And so we have, there's 50 people in our little bitty backyard. The, 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 the street looks like it's packed. It looks like a street party or a block party. We got the fire going and marshmallows. You understand? It is not what he thought it was. But he looked over there. He was out of alcohol. And he says, well, his, you know, in his mind, let me go over here and get some of their beer. <laughs> and it just so happened to be the middle of the night when I was thanking everyone. We just honored my wife. We, so some people had presents. It was beautiful. I'm thanking everyone. 
thank you so much for coming out. You guys, we love you guys. And I'm probably talking about Jesus a little bit. And then, hey, we're, we're about to get around the fire, roast some marshmallows, and just tell some more stories. I mean, it was going to be great. And out of the crowd, I didn't see him. I just heard him. I heard him just like this leper. He said, oh, y'all so, y'all so beautiful. Because my wife is standing next to me. And I go, oh. And instantly, instantly I was nervous. I was like, oh, because I know what drunk people sound like. I was raised by him. So I have a little PTSD, okay? It's reality. That's a real thing. And, hey, oh, y'all so beautiful. And then I heard the pain. I had I used to have that, and I said, oh. In my first mind is I want to drag him out of here for crashing my wife's birthday party. My second thought, the Spirit of God took over and said, he's hurting. Go talk to him. I just, he cut me off, so I was done talking. I came off the porch. I pulled, along, I pulled him alongside. I said, hey, brother, look, the only reason any of us in here know each other is because Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. You can be saved right now, and your whole life can be changed. He's blown out of his mind. I told you there's pastors and ministers. There's five or six strong, godly men. They heard me share the gospel with him, and out of nowhere, his hands started coming over the top of me and on top of him. And I said, well, we're praying for you. I figured it out real quick. Man, in that backyard, out up underneath the, the nighttime sky, we prayed down heaven. Man, I don't even know what was said, but I was crying by the time we got done. It was beautiful. And he says, I'll never forget his face. Never. He's, he's funny. <laughs> he's funny looking, too. Look, look he, he, his head's down like this. And when we got done, like he just come out of the waters of baptism. Like he just got baptized with the Spirit of God, I'm telling you. Oh, what? And I've never seen nobody sober up so fast in my whole life. He stayed the rest of the night. Everybody got a chance to minister to him three months later. And he could, and by the way, wouldn't stop knocking on my door every single day. <laughs> Still hasn't. We're like two and a half years into it. But he got saved and baptized three months later in our old church. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was extremely hard, though. It has been hard dealing with him. <laughs> it has been hard. And it was hard that first year. There was lots of times, there was lots of times where I felt like you know, I need to protect my family from him. I need to protect myself. I was, there was lots of times where I was putting up the walls, and I would put the wall up, but instantly God would say, no, 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 you keep letting him come. You keep letting him come. You take that. Take it. Thank you, Lord. It was hard. He was ugly. He was offensive. Today he's married. He knows He's got a memory like a steel trap. He's going to preach one day. He's got a, I'm telling you, there's no one that he will not tell about Jesus. I think he's more bold than me. It's hard. It's hard to love a leper, but it's worth it. Point two, Jesus loves the leper. What happened? What happened in the story? The leper came to Jesus. Why? Why would this leper come to Jesus? They're banned from the city. They're not supposed to be around the people. He, he, he could be stoned to death right now. There were 61 defilements in Judaism at the top of the list, a dead body. Number two is a leper. You don't touch them. And by the way, your pastor gave me a nugget. I got to at least say it one time so I don't forget it. 
Pastor Paul told me, he said, if Jesus touches that leper and that leper is not healed, Jesus has broken the law. But if Jesus touches that leper and that leper is healed, then he has fulfilled the law. And I'm telling you, everything in me wants to chop this pulpit in half when I say that. The power behind that. He can be stoned to death right now. He knows the law. He knows what he is. Why has he risked his life to be in front of Jesus right now? Maybe he's heard, he's, he, maybe he's heard some rumors. Maybe he heard him preaching from afar off. Uh, maybe one of his friends was healed, and that friend went back to the colony and preached to all of them. Right. Whatever the method was, whatever the method had been on getting the information to the leper, one thing's for sure. This leper is so well informed about who Jesus is and what he can do that he's willing to risk his life right now to be in front of him to get an audience with Jesus. And also, he has the right response. Someone has informed him properly. What's the response? Uh, he came to worship. What's the first thing it says? It says, uh, the leper came to him, bowed down. Bowed down, that's proscuneto. That's uh, to prostrate oneself, to get down on your face, to get down on your hands and knees, to kiss the feet, to kiss the ring. Matter of fact, matter of fact, proscuneto, the original definition uh, was a, a picture of, in the Greek, was a picture of a dog licking his master's hand. That's the original picture to it. The only time you see a man in this position is when he's in the presence of God or when he's in the presence of a king. And today, this leper is in the presence of both. Both. And he knows it. He knows it. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, I believe he knows it. There's so many. I've read other commentaries, people saying, well, Lord, at that point in time, meant sir and all this silliness. No. No, sir. If you know Jesus... And Jesus knows you. You come to him correctly, he's going to move for you. He's going to move for you. He calls him Lord. 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 So he bowed down. He worshiped first. Don't, don't forget that. He went and worshiped God first. That's the first thing he did. He blessed God. Bless you, God. I worship you. I praise you. And then... He calls on him with the right name, Kyrios, Master, Lord. It implies ownership. Acts 2, 36, God has made Jesus Lord. Romans 10, 13, all who call upon the name of uh, the Lord will be saved. This leper has got the right stuff. He's got the right stuff. He comes in humility. He comes in humility. What does he say? He says, if you're willing, that's Lord, if you're willing, Lord willing, he doesn't demand. He's not feeling sorry for himself, right? That's worldly sorry. He doesn't, he doesn't feel like he deserves better. He doesn't come demanding, saying, God, why did you make me like this? Why did you let this happen? He's, he's not blaming someone else for his circumstances. I'm not saying, look, look, that you should. And I'm not even really even asking. But if, 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 if you wanted to, if you wanted to, what else happens? He comes in faith, dunasai, dunamis, dynamite. He says, you have the power. I don't know if you will, but I know that you can. 
You got the power. You have the juice. I don't know. Oh. And by the way, where, 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 where do the Christians fit in this? Does anybody see their job, by the way? It's our job to well inform the lepers. It doesn't talk about him, but however this man found out, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You so well inform him about who Jesus is and what Jesus can do so that, that, so that when God visits that man, that man comes to Christ properly. That's our job. And then once Christ saves him, what's our other job? We come alongside of him. We teach him to obey. That's our job. That's discipleship. We get to partner with God in that. Third point. Does Jesus love the leper? Excuse me. Second point. I'm sorry. Is that it's still the second point? Does Jesus love the leper? You better believe it. What did it, what what did he do? He stretched out his hand. Look, there's over 100 Bible verses talking about the work of God's hand. Psalm 136, 12, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. Isaiah 59, 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. And then what did he do? He touched him. He touched him. Right then, some lady in the front screamed and passed out. Ah! You can imagine maybe some of his disciples even trying to pull him back. I, sometimes I think about these things. You know, I know that's extra biblical, but I'm just saying, could you imagine somebody in that crowd screaming, Jesus, don't do it. Don't touch him. He didn't have to touch him. He could have pointed. He could have gave a head nod. He could have gave him a thumbs up. He could have done anything. No, Jesus chose to come in close because as, as, as bad as he needed to be clean and as bad as he needed to be saved, he needed love. He needed affection. He needed God to come in close and be a part of his life. Jesus is the God who wants to come in close. He wants that intimate personal relationship. He wants to be so close to us that it, that it almost seems as if his hand is on us all the time. Acts 17, 27 says that he's not far away from us. James 4, 8 says, if we draw near to God, he will what? Draw near to us. Is this not a perfect picture of that? This man came. He drawed near to God. And what did God do? He drawed near to him. And he saved him. Because that's what we need. We need to be near to God in order to be saved. Jesus said, I am willing. There's a sense of eagerness to this text. Eagerness. That God is in heaven waiting. Waiting for the sinner to come to him properly. And to cry out. And to reach out for the life preserver, to reach out for the only hand that can save him, there is an eagerness that God wants to do this. God is in heaven ready and waiting, eager to forgive, eager to save sinners. Jesus loves the leper. Should we be willing and eager to be in the sinner's life like this? Point three, Jesus expects us to love the leper. Oh, my goodness. Y'all, get just buckle up. Put your seatbelts on, okay? <sighs> I, guess, I, guess, I guess the reason why this come out all like this is, is the topic is so near, near, dear to my heart, and the Word of God plainly says that we're supposed to be doing this. Jesus expects us to love the leper. Luke 
14, 13, and 14. But when you host a banquet, invite who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Luke 14, 23 says, So the master told his servants, Go out into the highways and the hedges, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And that's, that's, that doesn't sound safe at all. The highways, the hedges, right. the parking lots, the rehabs. It's not safe. No matter how we dress it up or try to reason it away in our minds or reason it away out of the pulpit, we are commanded to love people who do not look like us, sound like us, talk like us, or act like us. We're commanded to love these people. We are supposed to be opening up our homes and our lives to these people. This is God's design in order to spread the faith. It always has been God's design. But Vic, what if they steal from us? What if they are dangerous? I can't have them around my house. I can't have them around my family. Oh, I know exactly how you feel. About three and a half years ago, I told you, my door, my, my, the door to my home has been opened up for a few years ever since I read something that Francis Schaeffer said that he had an open door policy. When I read that and he said that there was no questions, it's too silly or off limits, you could come in and we'll sit down and talk. When I read that, that changed my life. And three and a half years ago, there's this guy. I had a men's breakfast at my house. I'm, uh, I'm in there cooking pancakes. I'm in there cooking eggs and and uh, grits and everything. I got f four or five guys at the table waiting on me. And this one guy who had been coming in our life and out of our life, he'd come around for a few weeks and then he'd disappear for a few weeks. In our life for a few weeks, disappear for a few weeks. So he's, he comes in the kitchen and he says, hey Vic, look, whenever, whenever you don't see me, I am completely handed over. And I what are you talking about? He said, man, I'm, Cocaine, uh, pornography, even online gambling, the whole shebang, completely hands himself over to darkness. He says, look, I'm telling you, the power of God come over me right then. I pulled up to him, and I said, this makes perfect sense. I said, how long have you been naming the name of Jesus? And I'm telling you, this guy quotes more scripture than I do. I'm telling you. About my age, you know. Good looking, got a good memory, lots of scripture pouring out of him for every little thing that's going on. It's a little kind of too much, you know, like, brother, we just hanging out in the living room and you're pulling scripture out. And I said, how long have you been naming the name of Jesus? He said, about 12 years. And I said, brother, you, I said, you don't understand the, what you're doing. I said, what's going to happen is God's going to remove what little light you have. You're, it's going to go dark, and you're going to do something that you're never going to be able to take back. He, he gets offended and angry with me. He walks into the living room. My, my youngest son's a year old. All I remember is him bending down. He said something to my one-year-old, and then he left out, and four days later, he killed a man with a hatchet. A shovel and a hatchet. He finished him off with the hatchet. So... Yeah. What do I do with that as a father? Husband. Um, 
I'm panicked. And I shut down shop for a little while. No one in, no one out. I closed up. And at the time, I was getting invited to preacher meetings at my church with all the pastors there. And this one, this one gentleman, his name's Billy Graham, actually. But he ain't the Billy Graham. He's in a wheelchair. He's blind. He's an evangelist, too. I mean, when you sit down and talk to this guy, you are so convicted because it leaves you telling yourself, what excuse do I have not to be doing this? What excuse do I have not to be spreading the word of God? But anyways, I go in. I tell Billy. I'm terrified, by the way. I'm human being, okay? I'm not some roaring lion that is unafraid of everything. I'm terrified about this. I walk in and I tell him. This is no lie. I tell him. I said, he said, what's wrong with you? I tell him. He says, so, so what are you afraid of? I said, the man just killed someone with a hatchet. He was around my family. And he said, Sovereignty of God, this is one of the biggest, this is one of the biggest, most amazing moments of my life. He said, oh, brother, do you think that you're keeping your family alive? Do you think that you're giving them breath, life? He said, you don't have a say-so over when or who takes their life when God says it's time it's time and you don't have a say so in that and you gotta understand I, I was I mean to be honest with you I was a little relieved I was relieved at that moment right there I placed my family I placed everything everyone that I love and in, back into the hands of God and I've never looked back I opened the doors back up to my home and we kept on trucking and besides, look, it's better to die in the Lord's will than it is to die outside of it. Amen. He that seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. We're called to love undesirable people. We are called to love the people we are most afraid of, unbelievers. Luke 6.32 says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. There's two, men, there's two men that stand out to me in my life. One of them is Jonathan. He's in here. There's another guy right now who's married, saved, and in ministry. And you know what they do? They take turns. They don't really know each other that well. They take turns calling me every month and just going, man, thank you so much for engaging me with the gospel. Both of them dangerous. Both of them men you don't want in your home. They're both saved. They're both married. They're both in ministry. They were completely unstable and dangerous when I met them. I had to put myself and my family in harm's way in order to get close enough to get the gospel in them. Never is the gospel more visible. Listen, never is the gospel more visible than when people are hurting you and you're giving them the same grace that God has given you. True love, real love requires sacrifice. And some suffering. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then maybe you've never loved anyone in your whole life. The Lord Jesus has given us power, power to love like this. Where do we see him love like this? On the cross. On the cross. Dying for heathen people who hate him. Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking at Jesus, the originator and the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
What is that saying? There's joy on the other side of suffering for righteousness sake. What kind of joy? The joy of salvation. There's so much joy to be shared in seeing people come to Christ and being a part of that. And purpose and joy. and mm. Some of you in here right now, some of you in here right now need this. Some of you in here, uh, maybe your life has gotten too mediocre. Maybe you're bored all the time. Maybe you've been playing it safe. You have a safe job. We have our safe jobs, right? Our safe job, uh, our safe group of friends, our safe little family, our safe church group. But the Lord didn't call us to live safe little lives. He called us to join the great adventure of winning souls to himself. If any man wishes to come after me, he must first, what, deny himself, pick up his cross, follow after me. We are called to suffer for what is right. 1 Peter 2.20, for what credit is it there if you, when you sin or harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do right, what is right, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Favor with God? There's no greater favor. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. 1 Peter 3.17, for it is better, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. 1 Peter 4.14, and this is his theme, suffer for doing what's righteous. So then those who suffer according to God's will should entrust their souls to their faithful creator and continue to do what is good. That is exactly what Pastor Billy said. Trust God. Keep doing what's good, Victor. Trust God. Keep doing what's good. There's a lot of joy in disciple making. There's a lot of heartache, too. You pour your life into these people. Then you have to watch them fall over and over and over again. They turn on you. They take the Facebook about you. They try to spread lies about you. They publish a book about you and go on and on and on for three chapters about you. Yeah, that's happened and happening right now to me. I've had all my equipment tore up because I cut grass for a living. I can't, I wish I could preach the gospel all the time. All my equipment tore up trying to work men that God wants me to work. I have to watch my wife get attacked by the people she's pouring into, trying to help people that are so blind and so dead that they can't figure out that you're trying to help them. That's why Paul compares it to the pains of childbirth. This is why Paul compares it to the pains of childbirth. Once you see Christ formed inside that person and you see this new little creation, all the pain and suffering that you went through was worth it. Isn't that right, mamas? Isn't that right? When you first seen that baby, all that pain, that suffering you went through for the nine months and trying to birth that little new creation out, it was all worth it. All the tears wiped away from your eyes. Absolutely worth it. God holds out unique pleasures when we empty ourselves out for the spiritual well-being of others. God holds out unique pleasures when we empty ourselves out for the well-being of others. John says it like this. In John 3, 3 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Amen. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, 20, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Is it not you? Indeed, you are the glory and the joy. The only thing that we'll be able to glory in is the fact that 
we're all saved and walking in the truth. God did it. The very people you pour your life into will be the source of some of the greatest joy you ever experience. Jesus has given us power to love like this. Verse 4, and I'm going to wrap it up and close with this. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one but go and show yourself to the priests and present the offering Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The offering strange. It's a very weird offering. Uh, you go, you get two doves. You run one under running water to clean it, to signify that this, this bird here is clean. They kill it. They pour the blood over the other bird, soak it down, and then they set that bird free. Why do you think Jesus sent him to do that offering? It signifies and it signals, it's, it's showing them what happened on the cross and resurrection. He died for us. His blood was shed and poured out on us so that God can look down from heaven and no longer see our filthiness, no longer see all of our sin, all the crimes we committed, the kids that I abandoned. He looks down now. He doesn't see that, but he sees his perfect, righteous son, and he loves him, and we have communion, and we fellowship, and because of the resurrection, because of Jesus lives, I will live too. And so will you. Amen. Father God, we love you and we thank you, God. I pray that everyone in here is encouraged. I pray that people are convicted, Lord. I pray that people will start opening up more, laying themselves on the line. God knows it's not easy. I go, I go through seasons where I don't want to do it. And God, you pull me back into it, Lord, because it's worth it. It's worth it to see men saved, Lord, but how willing are we to be a part of that? I love you so much, Lord. We love you so much. And it's in Jesus, Jesus' mighty name that we're here. Amen. 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 And I know that that's a good word from the Lord. Amen. God might be speaking to your heart this morning.